I'm Tori Shepherd, and this is Mapping Evil with Mike King, the podcast that investigates the geography of crime. Support for this episode comes from the country's leading mapping technology and services provider, Esri Australia. To learn more about how Esri Tech is making a difference in crime analysis and public safety, head to Esri Australia, that's E-S-R-I australia.com.au slash crime. Bolt of lightning hit a large high tension power line above me and came down and landed on the top of my shoulder. She was shot and killed while my grandfather was playing a fiddle in 1891. The death of Tutankhamun, who were able to solve that homicide 3,400 years later. I looked down and saw a man putting a rifle under a blanket on the back seat of his vehicle. And of course, the presidential motorcade was coming. Pretty soon, fantasy isn't adequate enough, and they finally have to acted out. What I found in my career is that treating him with dignity has led to getting confessions a little more easier. In this Mapping Evil special, we meet the man behind the map. So if you're a regular listener to this show, you'll know that Mike and I cover some pretty heavy topics. And to help us both find our way back to a much happier place, at the end of each podcast, Mike is often up for a quick chat about something I unearthed in my research about him. By nature, I'm a pretty curious person. It goes with the territory of being a journalist. And as I, and I'm sure you have come to learn, Mike does enjoy a good chat. So in this special bonus episode, it's my absolute pleasure to share with you some insights into the man behind the map, Mr. Mike King. There is certainly a lot more to him than meets the eye. So I think the best place to start when it comes to Mike and his career is at the beginning. In this first piece, you'll hear me catch Michael a little off guard about a time early in his career that very few people are aware of. Story one, lightning strikes. Mike, tell me what happened with the live wire. Oh, oh, oh. yes, I'd been a policeman only a few months when that happened. I was actually off and on my own. So we have a thing called a field training officer program and I was off of field training and I was on my own. One of the first nights that I worked alone, it was in the middle of a huge electrical storm and I received a call on the radio saying, you need to go and check a house that's on fire. The electricity is out and the fire department can't open the doors on the fire station because all of the electricity is out. But I responded to the scene and it was pitch black other than the bolts of lightning that were streaking across the sky. And it was just a, it was a terrible, almost Halloween-ish night and uh, it was raining. And as I walked in and was peering across an open field at this home that was on fire, I uh, had uh, left my patrol car with the door open, my overhead lights on, and I had walked just the short distance to peek into the field when a bolt of lightning hit a large high-tension power line above me, and it snapped the power line, which was 47,000 volts, and the line came down and landed on the top of my shoulders and gave me the ride of a lifetime. Oh, Mike, that is more horrifying than I even thought. You know, I once threw a leg over a bull fence and gave myself a real shock. You just painted such a vivid mental image. I'm sorry I had to take you back there. <laughs> it, it, it actually was a pretty amazing experience when it first hit me. For some reason, I was able to stay conscious through the entire episode. I was trapped in this live wire for 20 minutes while they were trying to get that shut off at the substation. 20 minutes, Mike. Yeah, it was uh, was amazing. And the amazing thing that happened during that is when it first hit me, 
It was uh, so powerful that it held me off the ground about three feet, and I was curled up into a fetal position because of just the intense muscle contraction that occurred. And the reason I know about that was actually an 18-year-old boy coming home from a date actually had pulled over and saw the bolt of lightning hit uh, the power line and, and, of course, the line falling on me. And so for an, a matter of seconds, I was suspended in air from the power of this electrical line, and I fell to the ground. And um, it's amazing how your mind kind of works, Tori, because I had a flashback immediately of when I was a child. And do you remember as a child putting the sprayer on the end of the garden hose and having it just enough that it flipped around like a wild snake and you would run and try to avoid the water? Well, that's what the power line was doing when I hit the ground. It uh, was flipping back and forth like a hose. And I had this flashback of being with my buddies on the front lawn of our home, trying to avoid the water hitting me, but it was actually electricity. And it came and connected onto my leg just below my groin. And then I had my second wild experience and memory For the next 17 or 18 minutes, the wire was on my leg and the sparks were going down my leg and off of my feet. And they were maybe going about four or five meters into the air off of my feet. And I had this flashback. There used to be a television black and white program called Flash Gordon. And Flash would always fly around with his jetpack and the sparks would come off the bottom of his jetpack. And I remembered thinking to myself, holy cow, I look like Flash Gordon right now. And then I uh, found myself getting weaker and weaker and had uh, what for me was a very spiritual experience that I don't talk about. And after about 20 minutes, they were able to shut the power off. And there was a huge explosion, which actually blew me about four meters away from the point in which I was hit. And uh, I was able to crawl away. And I remember the paramedics picked me up and took me to the hospital. And I was in the hospital and a man from the local power company walked in and wanted to know where the deceased was so that he could get my name. And, and I could hear him. And I said, I'm not dead yet. I screamed out and he walked in and he actually brought in my flashlight. And I maybe I can send a picture and we can put it on the website but the flashlight that I was holding was uh, about two feet long and it was a big metal flashlight. And you could see where my hand was wrapped around the flashlight because I couldn't let go of it because of the electricity. You can see where all of the batteries inside of the flashlight and the, ba- and the flashlight itself melted except for where my fingers were. And so he brought and delivered my flashlight and a big piece of dirt where I was laying and the dirt had turned uh, to glass. It was so hot where I was laying. So that's my experience. I have never wanted to have anything to do with electricity since then. And it took uh, over a year to heal from that. But it was a, an experience that gave me some time to reflect on what's important in life. Mike, that is the most extraordinary story. I was not expecting that. And I'm sorry that we took you back there, but I'm very happy that, you know, you're here now. (laughs) I am as well. I figured at that point that the heavens didn't want me, so I'm going to just hang around and do my stuff here. (laughs) So as you heard, Mike alludes to taking a year to recover from the accident. He took a year to recover, but he didn't exactly put his feet up. He actually went pretty much straight back to work, even though he couldn't feel his legs. 
he explained it was pretty much like having pins and needles all the time. He's made of a pretty tough stock, this man, which brings me to our next little snippet. One of the things I've learned about Mike is that when it comes to his family, it's one of his favourite topics. Here, I ask him about a time when his work life crossed paths with his family life. Story two, Mike's great-great-grandmother's murder. I heard a story, Mike, about a cold case that you solved that was close to home, might even have been a relative. Holy cow. That's interesting. Yes, it was 130 years ago that my great-great-grandmother was shot and killed at a Western town celebration in the Four Corners area of the United States. Mike, was it a Western town, like I'm thinking, with a bar with like saloon doors? And Are we talking Wild West? You know, this is Wild Wild West, and this is one of the most amazing women I can't wait to meet someday in the hereafter because she came across the ocean and walked across the American plains barefooted, no less, when she was seven years old and then was raised in Utah. She ended up traveling down to the Four Corners area as part of a group of people who conquered the Grand Canyon, uh, the front end of the Grand Canyon, uh, lowered 83 wagons and 2,000 head of cattle 2,000 feet down these sheer cliffs, worked their way into the Four Corners area and uh, settled that area. And the thing that became so intriguing is on her 43rd birthday, I believe it was, she was shot and killed while my grandfather was playing a fiddle and everyone was at the town dance celebrating statehood for uh, the state of Utah. It was uh, a crazy, crazy time in 1891, and it took 130 years to solve her case, but I kept thinking there's got to be something out there that we could find to help solve this mystery And after 10 years of investigations, I found that golden nugget that put it all together. Well, Mike, so many questions remaining. How can people read the full story? There's a book uh, that's in actually a rewrite. It's called Jane, A Woman's Determination and the Wild West Frontier. It's going to have a new name in a couple of months. So by the time this hits the airwaves in Australia. We'll have a new book out and they can uh, order that on Amazon or any other place and read the entire story, which is an absolutely captivating story and is so gripping when you find out what happened. So just like all our regular episodes, we'll be sure to make links of any of the resources and books Mike mentions available to you at mappingevil.com.au. Now, Mike's great-great-grandmother's murder is not the oldest cold case he's solved, if you can believe that. There is a case Mike and a buddy of his solved that would have to go down as the absolute oldest, possibly the coldest in history. Here I am putting Mike on the spot about one of the greatest mysteries of all time. Story three, the murder of King Tut. Mike? Yes, ma'am. I was reading about <laughs> I was reading about how you solved the murder of King Tut. Oh, yeah, that is correct. Now, a lot of investigators take a lot of pride in how cold the cold case is that they solved and the death and, and murder of Tutankhamun in 1340 BC is the oldest, coldest case 
And with uh, the help of my dear friend, Greg Cooper, we were able to solve that homicide some 3,400 years later. Well, who done it? Yeah, well, now the 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 secret there is you got to buy the book and ah. read Who Killed King Tut. <laughs> but the secret about that investigation was that uh, as we were invited by the Discovery Channel to go and look into the death of Tutankhamun, um, we had to go in and almost vicariously go everywhere that the the pharaoh traveled. So it was really an exciting opportunity. We spent months in Egypt where we traveled, uh, multiple trips back and forth. We went everywhere that the pharaoh would have traveled. And we uh, moved from kingdom to kingdom as as we moved through trying to understand what was happening politically, what was happening financially in the country. For those that are history buffs, there were incredible religious battles going on between those who believed in monotheism and those who believed in polytheism, multiple gods. And those factors started to rise to the surface as motivation for the killers to get rid of the young young pharaoh. Now think about this. This was a very young pharaoh when he became pharaoh. He was really a puppet in the hands of the the uh, vizier or the the leader or chief of staff for the country at the time or the kingdom. And we saw this progression as he starts to come into power and starts to weaken the structure around him that several uh, suspects rose to the surface. Now, one of those was the army general, and it was a powerful general by the name of Horemheb, who in many cases we see when governments are overthrown, it's overthrown by the generals and the armies. We had to look really closely at him. It was his vizier, uh, a man named I, who uh, was second in command if the pharaoh were to go, and we had to look at the power structure there. We had to look at the Egyptian boogeyman out there, the guy who might just sneak in and kill the pharaoh for some particular reason, or that he might have been injured out in an accident, like racing his chariot like kids do today in their their hopped-up, supercharged vehicles. Uh, This young pharaoh at at 18 years old might have been racing his chariot across the desert and hit a rock and and, uh, was killed. What we were able to do is take behavioral analysis and all of that information in totality and come up with a theory that the young pharaoh was actually murdered. And the book outlines how we actually put together, and this is kind of a fun part of the book, we put together a uh, charge against the person that we believed was responsible for the case and held a grand jury and uh, and then later convicted them of murder. Mike, I love how in true crime style you've given us some red herrings, some false leads, and then another great big tease. I love it. And did you use any GIS? Like, did you, as you were traveling around between all those different areas, how did you kind of map where he was compared to where you were going? Yeah. In fact, we used GIS every step of the way. And that was what was really fun from from my personal perspective, being a GIS lover. We had to look at things like the the movement of the Nile River and how it rises and falls in, in during rainy season and during the driest parts of the 
of the year because those were significant times when they would actually bring supplies up the Nile or or ferry big chunks of, of rock to build the temples and other kinds of things. So we had to take into account the movement and the human movement of people. We had to look at the physical structure of these environments, like where those who were called to be royalty would live and those who were the support staff and the servants and the workers around those. And when we started looking in Giza at the creation of those magnificent pyramids or even the 4,500-year-old Saqqara pyramid, we had to take into account how geography was used to move rock from one place in the country to another place and the way in which they would do that. And then just how they moved from the upper to the lower kingdom in the course of natural running of the business of government, uh, all of that became really important. And, and then introduce all the wackiness with the Nubians attacking them and all of, all of the people that were constantly fighting with the Egyptian empire uh, and how they strategized in war was all information that we could place out on the map as we looked at, at the overall theories behind who might have killed King Tut. Mark, what's the name of the book again? Who Killed King Tut? That's a very good name. (laughs) And we might get a link to that up on the Mapping Evil website. And as promised, we have put a link up on the site to Mike's book and there's a heap of photos as well you should check out. Now, from the most famous of pharaohs to movie-style presidents, Mike has kind of seen it all. In my next little chat with Mike, I ask him about the day he almost saved the life of US Commander-in-Chief, President Ronald Reagan. Here's Mike taking me through the events leading up to one of the more unusual days in his career. Story four, a high five from Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Well, I was fortunate the president was actually visiting the city that I was working in. And like most cases, the Secret Service gives the local police really mundane jobs to do so that we stay out of their hair and they can (laughs) protect the president. Just get busy over there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, give them a sucker and move them to the corner. And uh, I, I was a brand new member of our SWAT team at the time. And so I was given a really far outpost uh, overlooking the hotel in which the president was staying in. And and as the motorcade came into the city and, and was approaching the hotel, I looked down and the place that I was standing was very near the sheriff's department jail area. And I looked down and saw a man putting a rifle under a blanket on the back seat of his vehicle. And of course, the presidential motorcade was coming in. So I notified the Secret Service and then our officers and they brought the helicopter in just over the top of the car with a man with a big 50 caliber machine gun hanging out of it and took this guy and took him into custody and hauled him off. I later found out that he spent three days in interrogation during this and I'll come back to kind of the interesting side of the story but it was really nice. The next morning, the president left town. I had the opportunity to salute him. And, and of course, what an exciting thing to see a president. And I was a young police officer at the time. But later that afternoon, the president's office called my home and I was asleep. I was working a graveyard shift and they tried to get my wife to wake me up so that the president could speak to me. And she thought it was one of the other officers <laughs> playing a joke. And so she wouldn't let the president talk to me. And, uh, Anyway, he sent a beautiful letter and and some very nice things as an accolade and a personal thanks. And to get a letter from the President of the United States thanking me uh, for potentially saving his life was a wonderful experience. 
Now, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story is the fellow that was arrested actually happened to be picking up a stolen rifle from the police department that had been taken into evidence by detectives. And he figured since he was in town, he would just tuck it under the blanket on his seat and go see the president come into town. So he was just a normal Joe (laughs) that happened to be in the wrong place. And the poor guy spent three days under bright lights being interrogated by the Secret Service until they finally let him go and realized he probably wasn't a threat to the president. But it was a wonderful thing and something that I've always felt so honored to have a president actually utter my name. Not quite the grassy knoll, but a fine story, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. As is the case, most days Mike and I try to lift the mood by finishing our sessions with a little bit of laughter, a bit of banter. Sometimes it's not always that easy to move on and away from the dark topics. Next up, you'll hear how, despite Mike's efforts to steer the conversation to a lighter topic, my curiosity gets the better of me. Here, I ask Mike to help me understand what it's like to come face to face with a predator. Story five, from fantasy to reality. We need to actually flip the tables, Tori, and at some point I need to start getting to know you better and start asking you or interrogating you a little more closely. I think I'm cultivating a kind of air of mystery. (laughs) I'm going to stay with that. (laughs) Anyway, back to you. I want to know a little bit more about how a serial killer makes that leap from fantasy into action because you met like a budding serial killer. Oh, you know, that is such an interesting question and really an interesting experience that I had. I've taught it for many years. And if you think about even in your own personal life, we all go through this process where we fantasize about something. For some, it might be being a rock star and playing in front of a huge audience. And they may sit in their in their room with their iPhone on and staring at themselves and, and singing songs. But serial killers are no different. So think about this. So this fantasy process is really interesting because we all can experience this. We can all understand it. The difference between you and me and a serial killer is we fantasize. And if we start stepping over the line and thinking about something that's inappropriate, we snap ourselves back. It's that psychological piece of us that says, holy cow, you're stepping over the edge. The serial killer doesn't. They continue to fantasize about it. Well, pretty soon, fantasy isn't adequate enough, and they finally have to act it out. And so we see them then start to become this actual killer. I had the opportunity of of looking into the murder of a a little girl in Salt Lake City, Utah, that had been murdered uh, on her front steps. And at the same time that that was happening, there was a murder of a nine-year-old boy named Matthew Checky in the San Diego area of California who was murdered. And it was a terribly gruesome murder. And so I reached out to the investigator in that case, who later became my very closest friend. And we started to talk about the similarities in the case. And I started to think about this process of fantasy. And I jumped on a plane and I went down and I interviewed the offender who shared with me the process that he went through as he finally made the decision that fantasies, his desire to kill someone, was finally not going to be satisfied unless he really acted out and he made that decision. And so we spent literally hours and hours discussing the process that he went through, the emotion that he went through, the challenge that it was to actually do it, and then the reality of how hard it was 
to do that. And and we should not make any mistakes about this. These people that kill people, it, it's hard to kill someone, and yet they will continue to do it. And when they fail or fall short or the victim lives, they have to return back to their confines and work out in their mind that fantasy, figure out what they did wrong, and solve it the next time. And that's what we see happen over and over again with serial killers. The fantasy, it builds up, it never is satisfying enough, and they finally have to act out. So this guy, was there a trigger for him finally acting up, or it was just like a build-up of pressure and then boom? Well, you can go back and, and we can really get uh, philosophical about at what point they triggered over, but he began at a very early age starting to have really odd feelings, and it built up over time. I don't believe that somebody just walks out the door one morning and says, dang it, I didn't get warm cereal for breakfast. I'm going to go out and kill people. There's a process that happens in between there and a buildup that happens until they finally act out. And for some, it could be um, acting out on things like uh, killing animals, uh, other kinds of things where they can really establish dominion and control over other things. But eventually it will lead up to this, if that's their fantasy, is to be a killer. So that's almost it for today, but I have one more little snippet left to share, and it is my favourite, as I think it reveals the most about Mike as a person. This is a man who's seen the absolute worst of humanity in all its gory detail, and he's still able to see the world through some pretty kind eyes. I have to wonder if where we started today may have something to do with this. We pick up the conversation as Mike and I are literally just wrapping up another session. Here I bust Mike taking the opportunity to multitask and flip through some of his mail. Story six, fan mail from a serial predator. Ah, Mike, well, that was good. Now, hold on, what's going on with you? What, well, what has just happened? Yeah, this is interesting, Tori. So do you remember the serial rapist we spoke about last week? I, I tried to forget, but no, I do remember that very grisly <laughs> crime. It's 70 women across the United States that you, and you busted him. 75 rapes in 11 different U.S. states. Yeah, so I, what I've got here, I'm, I, this, I feel like I'm in, in the old Johnny Carson show opening up a letter. Um, this actually is from that inmate, and I haven't had a chance to, uh, well, you saw, I just opened it up. Oh, my. <laughs> this is a little creepy. But uh, the, it's, it's interesting. I get uh, letters from people that I've put in prison from time to time. And, and uh, you know, I think maybe it, uh, and, and rather than risk some of the personal nature of what he's talking about, sometimes it's further confession. Sometimes it's information that they learn about in prison and they want to share with someone in hopes that they can stop something that's going on. But it, it brings up kind of an interesting thing. And maybe it's just a personality trait that I've had uh, all my life, but I never have had a problem still humanizing these uh, predators and treating them with at least a level of dignity. And I think that's what's been beneficial for me in getting confessions from people that in other cases people haven't uh, been able to get. But for now, I see that you just opened that letter from the serial rapist, Blaine Hog Nelson. Is that how I say his name? Hog Nelson, yes. But you've just put it down again. Are you not going to tell us what was in it? Uh, well, no, I probably won't tell you what's in it. But let me see. Um, maybe when you go away and have a read of it, maybe we can have a Yeah, you know, you don't want to get someone hurt. 
because you share something without thinking. Uh, but it's interesting because uh, I, do, I do get uh, letters from time to time, and maybe what we can do one time is share some artwork that I've received from inmates. I have a serial killer who has uh, done some beautiful uh, pen and, and pencil drawings that actually are framed in my office. It's actually pretty intriguing to watch uh, what they do, but uh, I guess what I'm saying is uh, it, it's, I've never had a problem uh, helping an offender go to prison that needed to go to prison, uh, but I've never lost sight that they're still a human being, and, and what I've found in my career is that treating them with dignity and decency has led to, I think, getting confessions a little more easier. So, Mike, we already knew that you were a nice guy, but I think we have learned some more about you this time around, which is you're willing to sit down for a prison lasagna with a guy <laughs> and that you get fan mail from prison. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know you should be proud of that, but uh, I guess I am. I actually, about two weeks ago, spent two and a half hours in a recorded conversation with a, a ritualistic murderer and uh, we'll actually be talking about him in one of the later broadcasts. And it's a little unnerving for some people that I can continue to, to visit with them, but uh, he's where he needs to be. He will never leave prison. He's been in prison for 30 years since he was convicted for this crime. But that doesn't mean that he's still not a human being and, and uh, hopefully he's somehow uh, restituting, which is what we want out of our prisoners. And I've got to say that that podcast episode, I know that that is going to be one of my favourites already. Mike, thank you. I hope you're not having lasagna for dinner and I look forward to talking to you next time. <laughs> I'm having a blast and I'm looking forward to being able to interview you more closely, Tori. So there you have it, guys. A quick glimpse into the man behind the map. It has been an absolute pleasure sharing some of these behind the scenes moments with you. Make sure you get over to the website, have a look at some of the photos of Mike. There is a prison lasagna recipe, I kid you not. There's also a photo of Mike's torch with his hand burned into it and a few other fun bits and pieces. And stay tuned for the final episode of Mapping Evil Season 1. It is a real cracker and we'll give you a sneak peek of what's in store for Season 2. It is going to be explosive. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tori Shepherd. Until next time. This is a Balstead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Tori Shepherd, and Mike King. Sound design by Fig Media with editing support from Kim Douglas, Gabby Patterson, Circa 3, and Podbooth Studios. Artwork by Superscript, and our executive producers are Raquel Jackson and Alicia Kuperitsis. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia. Mm-hmm.